I'm Ruth Sturkey and welcome to Money Expresso, no froth conversations exploring money and life. I know from my experience as a financial planner that we humans are often inhibited when it comes to talking about money. Many of us struggle to see that money is really just a means to an end and that the decisions we make around money can change not only our life, but the life of others as well. I'm going to be speaking with guests from a variety of backgrounds and asking them to share their personal story and the influence money has had along the way. I'm also going to be delving into some of those tricky money and life questions that I've seen my clients wrestle with over the years. My hope is that the shared experience of my guests will help you think maybe differently about money and ultimately make better money and life decisions. Welcome to episode 10 of Money Expresso with my guest today, Genevieve Shaw. Now, I recorded this episode with Genevieve back in mid-April, which is why Genevieve mentions the Women's Rugby Six Nations competition. Yet, as Genevieve shares her experiences of the challenges of being a World Cup winning rugby player in the mid-1990s, it feels appropriate that we are going live with this podcast as we come off the back of the 2020 Olympics. Sit back, grab yourself a cup of coffee, and let's get on with the show. Now, I first met Genevieve in about 2007 when she and her husband, John, became the first clients of my financial planning business, The Red House, which we merged into Paradigm Norton in 2017. Genevieve has had an incredible sporting and business career and is one of the most cool, wise, funny and straight talking women I've ever met. Genevieve sports rugby. During her playing career, she played for Saracens and Wasps as well as England and was a player in the 1994 Women's Rugby World Cup winning team, beating the defending champions, the USA. She's now an independent non-executive director to the Rugby Football Union, the RFU board. Her executive career was predominantly in publishing, where she held a number of roles, including Global Digital Director of Penguin Group and Chief Digital Officer and then Chief Information Officer for Pearson PLC. Since 2014, Genevieve's held non-executive director positions for a variety of organisations, including Santander UK, Lego, Money Supermarket, Arup and Scottish Television. She also invests into education startups, technology startups, as well as running her own property and retail business in Scotland. Genevieve, it's brilliant to have you on Money Expresso. Welcome. Thanks, Ruth. What a lovely way to start a day. <laughs> oh, well, it's um, you've just shown me your view um, of looking out to the sea up there in the highlands of Scotland. What a beautiful place for you to be sitting. So uh, we're perfectly posed. Let's go. So Jenny, looking forward to it. Thank you. Now you've had the type of success that most of us can only dream about. Firstly, as part of the 1994 Women's Rugby World Cup winning team, before rising to the top of the corporate ladder and becoming one of the few female, certainly then anyway, directors of a FTSE 100 company. Now I'd love to have a little dig around a little bit more with both of those. But, but firstly, can you tell me about being part of the World Cup winning rugby team and and the kind of influence and role that money had on your on your playing career. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I'd like to say that it brought me uh, riches and wealth, but uh, that would not be true. And uh, <laughs> if anything, it was uh, it was pretty tough actually. Um, I mean, absolutely incredible uh, support in many ways from what was then the Women's Rugby Football Union to help players be the best players they could be and to put out a um, incredible England squad and to put on a, a World Cup but you know there was no recompense yeah. for uh, your time or effort um, certainly no such thing as a winning bonus or wow. uh, anything like that and if anything you know you had to be relatively wealthy to be able to play you know yeah. which is one of the challenges for women's sport, you know, a lot of women have to make these choices to either live very frugally in order to play or, um, you know, give up careers or not play, yeah. you know, literally have to make the choice not to play. I mean, I think I was, I was very young at the time. So, you know, wasn't earning a huge amount of money. My employer gave me the time off mm -hmm. for the world cup mm -hmm. um, as holiday. So, so you had to take it as as holiday. It wasn't had to take it. Yeah, no, it wasn't 
the next glacier yeah no definitely not but then every other expense for that month that we spent in edinburgh the players had to play hey our hotels our food our transport to and from and uh i had to my parents came up and watched the world cup final and i had to go back to work the next day because um so i literally played the world cup final went out for dinner had a few drinks had to go go back to work the next morning and i had to borrow 50 quid off my dad to uh because i suddenly realized i you know had no money at all in my bank yeah. account and um my dad kindly lent had to be paid back <laughs> uh the 50 pounds so that i could uh, get myself some food and get, and I knew i could get from the train station back home um so that's extraordinary so, so you and your your teammates you're representing england uh in the world cup and mm. you've got to pay for it all yourself yeah yes and that I went mean, on for a very very long time God. i mean that what we were not the last um i mean that went on for a very long time and still goes on today in lots of women's sport yeah um you know and possibly lots of men's sport but not certainly no men's representative sport yeah um but you know it still goes on today i mean luckily now the england women's team are professional players they're paid by the rfu they have a great setup there's always more we'd like to do Indeed. and more investment we'd like to make but um you know they are but their counterparts in wales and ireland are not so we're in the middle of the women's six nations at the moment and you know the welsh players are amateur and the welsh players are playing against professional teams from england and france yeah and scotland and ireland are a sort of little bit of a mixture of the both but you know those welsh women's players pulling on the red jersey will be paying for their petrol paying for their hotels god i hadn't appreciated that god yeah yeah and and what a contrast to the to to the male sport. I mean, I'm not going to kind of delve around in that too much because yeah. we could go down a real rabbit hole. But but yeah, I, I mean, that must have been you know cut into the chase pretty tough to play at that level and hold down a full time job. Yes, no, definitely. And um, you know, I think that's the challenge, isn't it? Because yeah. uh, and it was certainly a choice I made as I got older and into my 20s and I was playing rugby still for Saracens and I actually got injured and had a year off because I hurt my knee yeah. and so just worked and consequently you know no surprise did a bit better at work <laughs> not running off to play rugby every night and um, actually concentrated got promoted got a bit more money and you know if I'm very honest I made a choice yeah. in my late 20s that I was going to focus on work um, bought a house, you know, did all mm. those things as you, mm. as you could then in your late 20s. Yes. <laughs> um, so for me, it, it wasn't a really difficult choice, but it definitely was a choice that yeah. I was not going to be, you know, without funds and not going on holidays and not having a house of my own in order yeah. to play rugby. So you 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 were you were uh, were you in publishing at the same time as you were playing rugby, yeah. and so when you decided to step back from rugby somewhat, you then started to focus more on the publishing world. Now I'm interested in because I I believe when you started in publishing you were in a, a more sales role, mm. and then you moved across to digital. How, how did that evolve? Uh, well, like most things in life, timing plays a good part, doesn't yeah. it? So, um, you know, I, yes, I was in sales uh, and ended up running uh, group sales for Penguin. Mm -hmm. So that was all of the sales outside of North America. And, um, you know, that was great. I absolutely loved it. What a privilege, really, to, to be doing a fantastic job like that. But by 2007, I, I'd been doing it for a long time you know I'd been basically a sales director since I was well since 1995 yeah um so just after the world cup I became a sales director at Random House and so that's quite a long time to basically do the same thing mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> and at the time we were starting to talk about ebooks if you can believe it oh people were reading pdfs online how exciting <laughs> and um, and we were looking to hire somebody at penguin to be the digital director 
but we were worried about, as we called it, organ rejection. Because <laughs> um, uh, we were interviewing people from Apple and Google and, um, you know, lots of technology companies. Mm. And they understood technology, but they didn't understand publishing. And, you know, UK publishing then and now is quite a particular culture. Yeah. Um, like any industry is, like financial services is. Sure. So you've got to find somebody who can fit as much mm. at, in order to be successful, as yes. much as have knowledge or expertise. So we were, uh, this sounds very publishing, sitting in the Savoy one evening, <laughs> having a drink with my boss. And he said, um, oh, why don't you just do it? Because... You know, brilliant. You know as much. You know enough about it. We'll we'll make it work. <laughs> and I just said yes straight away. <laughs> and um, so I went from having you know sort of billion dollars of uh, P and L and thousands of people to no no <laughs> revenue and two members of staff and a couple and of PDFs. Brilliant. Yeah, and a couple of PDFs. <laughs> and it was brilliant. I absolutely loved it because it was new. It was different. And, you know, thank you, Amazon, for launching the Kindle and thank you, mm. Apple, for launching the iPhone and then the iPad, because I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Well, you know, better, cleverer people were doing exciting things that we were able to take advantage of. So it, I mean, it was great. Yeah. I mean, that was like right, you know, not even on the, you know, that was before. I was going to mention the yeah. crest of the wave, but it was before, as the, the wave was even was starting gathering. to build, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, some yeah. way offshore at that point. Yeah. So, and so did you, 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 you kind of, um, I don't know whether you tongue in cheek say you knew little about digital, but was it a really steep learning curve for you? No, it totally was. I had no <laughs> idea at all. I mean, we have to remember, and I tell my uh, kids this or talk about this with people so you know I remember the first computer arriving at work and it was shared between three of us and um, not when I was doing the Penguin Digital job but back in the early 90s yeah. and we used to have the computer on a on a turntable in the middle of our desks and and share it we say oh please can I use the computer <laughs> and um, so yeah but you know we'd been working with computers but for publishing generally yeah. it was a huge learning curve and, yeah. you know, it's been a very, in many ways, you know, a relationship that benefited from each other. You know, it was good for Penguin if Waterstones did well and it was good for Waterstones if Penguin did well. Mm. And then that dynamic really changed because Amazon didn't care if we did well. Yeah. And Apple wanted to sell handsets. They wanted to give away content. Google wanted to... Um, if you remember, index every book in the world, which yes. basically meant copy every book in the world and give it away for free because that benefited the search engine, the algorithms and the advertising dollars. So suddenly we were thrown into a world where the business model was completely different. Yeah. So these companies did not make money from selling books, which we could then reinvest in our authors and, mm. you know, in the companies. They made money from selling ads, selling um, you know, handsets from having eyeballs on screens. And that put us in a, such a different position. So that was, to me, that was fascinating to mm. work in that environment and have everything thrown up in the air. Um, was oh, I just absolutely loved it. I love the problem solving. I love the, um, it suited me, I think, the more competitive and competitive nature of the relationship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I, I, I thrived in that environment. So I loved working in America. I loved working um, in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, and, and it was just very, very different for me. And, and I really, really enjoyed it. Amazing. I mean, amazing time to be to be involved. I mean, like, you know, we, we mm. hear all the time about dis disruptors. Mm. Publishing was totally broadsided by the by the sound of it. Yeah, yeah, as, as most media was. I mean, we sort of had a playbook because mm -hmm. we'd seen what had happened to the music industry. Yeah. So we spent quite a lot of time uh, thinking and working with um, content creators, songwriters, publishing companies in music and really understanding, you know, what had happened to them because they really went first, you know, yeah. with iTunes yeah. and, Course. and then Spotify and streaming and... Um, and it, interestingly, it sort of went music, newspapers, books, 
and then TV. Yeah, yeah. You know, and now films, you know, yes, so now absolutely. you're seeing major releases come straight to Netflix. Yeah. Uh, partly driven by the pandemic. But yeah, and that the music business, I remember somebody saying in the music business, and, and it, everybody says it now, it's an old adage, um, but it was, you know, physical dollars, digital sense. Um, so, mm. you, you know, you've mm. got to get used to the fact that you're, you will not make as much money your profit margins will be yeah. reduced and 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 that was true you know but we were yeah. always trying to manage the equation of volume versus yeah <laughs> you know yeah. value um and was it around that time that um um Pearson became more education focused or, or had as an organization you've always been education focused no it had always been well Pearson's such an interesting company so I, I won't bore you and go too far back but Pearson originally actually was an oil company oh, um, God. we always used to laugh and say god we wish we'd stayed in that business <laughs> um but there was it was an oil company it was an engineering company it was a railroad company and then it became a real conglomerate so it owned theme parks mm. and Madame Two Swords and oh, uh, Pearson Television, you know, famously made Baywatch, which was always <laughs> the, everybody in Penguin thought was the absolute nadir of, you know, <laughs> popular culture. Um, but uh, under Marjorie Scardino, she kind of started to um, focus and realign the company around content. Mm. So she came from The Economist, where mm. she'd been the editor and Pearson over the Financial Times, actually owned a lot of newspapers. But the first thing, one of the first things she did when she divested um, the theme parks and various things, and eventually got out of television as well, or production companies rather than uh, broadcast, um, was streamline the newspaper business yeah. down to a few key brands. Um, mm. And then we had Penguin and DK and then she started buying education businesses and then actually started buying education technology businesses. So she was very smart early on, mm. realizing that the vertical integration of owning how content was delivered yes. was probably not going to be possible in consumer publishing, but could be possible in education publishing. And so more and more was spent there. And then she spent a lot of time thinking and we invested in a lot of testing businesses and testing delivery businesses. So it became education as a vertical. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's really, really yeah. fascinating company to work in. Um, and um, I, I remember you mentioning about um, Marjorie. I mean, she was a CEO of, of PS, yeah. is that right? Yeah. And so was it under her auspices that you became a board director? I mean, yeah. you and Marjorie, I mean, two women on a board, that was that yeah. pretty much unheard of in the FTSE 100 then? Uh, well, and we had Rona Fairhead as well, who was CFO okay. for a long time and yeah. then ran the uh, Financial Times and professional business. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a very, you know, I mean, it's that classic thing, isn't it? If you put a woman in charge, suddenly yeah. diversity happens um, yeah <laughs> I don't know why that is I think it is changing but certainly um there was a lot of very senior female leaders mm. and partly because a lot of women work in publishing work in education work in yeah. media generally yeah so it's a broader base yeah uh to draw from than say you know engineering was 20 years ago absolutely um so but yes no it was it was great I mean you know I've been very if I look back at my career, all the people I've worked for have had the same generosity gene. Okay. So, mm. you know, my first boss when I left publishing and then, you know, I've really only had five or six bosses all the yeah. way through, but um, just very generous with their time, with their support, you know, real mentors as that well. It makes as such a difference, doesn't it? When you're, you know, you're learning and yeah. you, you, know, you need somebody to look up to and, if, if you ever get the chance to choose your boss yeah then you know I it's just such a blessing if you can choose somebody who you know actually cares about what yeah. happens to you yes you know? yeah and, and unfortunately that is not true of everybody and I imagine in a you know publicly listed business where you're having quarterly results and being judged constantly mm -hmm. um I, I can imagine how it, it can get quite um, 
quite savage at times. Uh, yes, I suppose because I worked in sales, yeah, that was quite natural to me. Yeah. So, you know, actually our sales, uh, um, I was talking to somebody about this the other day and saying, you know, first thing you do every morning, you look at your sales figures. Yeah. How did we do? Where are we going? What's our stock? What are we going to do today? So for me, actually, when I moved into the technology and digital side of the business and actually somebody was only asking me monthly and quarterly okay <laughs> it was quite yeah. a relief <laughs> good training yeah yeah, yeah. so it was so kind of and then I mean you would have been still young you made the decision to step out of that FTSE 100 mm. director corporate lifestyle yeah and moved to the highlands of Scotland and set up new businesses up there yeah how did how did that come about well I think so I mean I think you know there's there's having a good boss and then there's having a less good boss okay so Mm -hmm. um we won't go into that too much because it's a long time ago now but um you know, I, I became very disillusioned with corporate life, I would yeah. say. And partly I think, you know, these jobs, I hope that I hope there's something about the pandemic that changes mm. um, how people work. But I could, I for six or seven years did 200 plus days out of the country. So away from my family. Um, and I think in the last year I did something like 240 days out of the UK because I was working in America, India, China, uh, went to Australia for two days once. I mean, you know, complete madness really. Not just from a planet and (laughs) environmental point of view, but, you know, physical and mental health, you know, they're unsustainable, I think, Mm. over a long period of time. Mm. So I was burnt out. I was definitely had enough, um, and I definitely wanted a change. And so originally it was, oh well, I'm going to um, spend more time in Scotland. Um, mm. John's family was up here, had been up here, um, and we ended up buying a house up here, which was a sort of long-term plan. But the more time I spent here, the more I just felt home. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's as simple as that, really. Yeah. And so John was finishing off um, his contract and time at DK, 25 years. We'd always known he was going to finish at a certain date. And then we he came up here and then we just, you know, I don't know, really. I always tell the story. I don't know if this is true because it might have become folklore <laughs> already. That we went out for lunch one day and had a bottle of wine and um, and John bought a hardware store, <laughs> <laughs> which was next door to the restaurant. But it's sort of apocryphal, and it's sort of true as well. And so, by accident, we've ended up running two retail businesses. Um, but by design, we've ended up running a property business and buying a few properties and renovating yeah. them and turning them into holiday lets, long-term lets, and. Um, yeah, it's great. Keeps us occupied. And um, so as I understand it, you've got the hardware shop and then is it a deli that you have? Uh, yeah, food uh, and wine shop. It's, it's more, I would say it's like, it's more like Whole Foods okay. than, a, than a sort of deli. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's basically all the things that I want to buy <laughs> in Stoke Newington. So. <laughs> and, and so you bought a, a, a little bit of London to the Highlands, I guess. Yes, yes, something like that, London or the Cotswolds or something, Mm. but it's very interesting because there's so many good cooks up here, Yeah, and people really do love their food, Yeah, so I'm constantly of the, you know, please don't think of Scotland as deep fried Mars bars, um, absolutely, and fish and chips, Um, people are, you know, amazing cooks, and particularly bakers, um, and lots of patisserie and those mm. kind of amazing things. But also the food here is just phenomenal. Um, you is know, that the locally sourced, lo- locally sourced? Yeah, the seafood obviously is incredible, yeah. but also the meat and the farming culture and the crofting culture here means people, you know, really care about how they farm. And, yeah. you know, when people talk about regenerative farming and sustainable farming, 
that is how the farming is here. Yeah. Um, so refreshing to hear. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. It's amazing. And so there's no problem either finding amazing food and produce or finding people who want to eat it. Perfect. So it's great. Yeah. So you're combining all of your many of your passions in in one place so great food retail yeah. running your own business beautiful countryside yeah. out of the very, corporate very rat race nice yeah, good very lucky but I thought I mean I think the running our own business has been a huge shock for us yeah so I was going to ask yeah. you about that yeah. so there you are I don't know billions of pounds of turnover or something I'm guessing really big yeah. budget stacks and stacks of people yeah and then you've got your own business. How were you? Did you feel kind of equipped from your corporate background to kind of like scale that down? Or was it a bit kind of daunting? Was it kind of even more daunting? So I think that's such an interesting question. So some things are really transferable and helpful. Mm -hmm. So uh, managing people. Yeah. Yeah. obvious it doesn't matter whether you manage five thousand or five yeah you know treat people with respect be yeah. clear about what you want them to do and reward them fairly you know um yeah. so that's that's not not been difficult um and then there've been other things which i i imagine if you're a small business are really hard if you've mm -hmm. never done it before um so for instance, the, the amount of paperwork for a tiny little two-shop business. Yeah. Um, but everything from, you know, risk assessments, health and safety training, alcohol licensing, yeah. public liability insurance, you know, I mean, it's just endless. Yeah. That was absolutely fine because yeah. no different than corporate life. You know, here comes another piece of paperwork which may or may not be useful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, and doing it the biggest challenge for us I think has been and I'm sure you've heard this from many people is managing cash flow mm. investment capital investment outflow yeah. you know working in a seasonal business we're very seasonal up here um, and so you know those first couple of years of getting through December, January, February, mm -hmm. where you think, oh, <laughs> this is not going to be easy. And then, yeah. you know, figuring out what your rhythm of your business is going to be mm. um, and knowing that, you know, at the end of August, you really need to have 100 grand cash in the bank because that's going to have to pay for everything for the of winter. Course. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's just that that's been fascinating it um, does feel different when it's your own money doesn't it I know from running oh, the, the red house there's well I guess it just makes it really real doesn't it when it, it's your own money your own cash flow you're employing people you've, yeah. you've got those pressures that you're you're it's a different type of pressure isn't it than the corporate world I think so but it, it, it you know in a way if I went back now and worked in a bigger job or worked mm. in a corporate world I'd be desperate to find people who'd run their own business yes yeah and bring them in yeah or find a way to help them use them with the, because it's things like I mean I can remember you know it is things like turning the lights off and you know yeah. turning the fridges down and you know I think our electricity bill last month was seven and a half thousand pounds because we had a freezer that was running too hard yeah and you know it hadn't, yeah. been it hadn't the air filter hadn't been cleaned and the, you know I mean it, that's a thousand pounds just gone because somebody forgot to clean the air filter on the back of the freezer and you notice and, and, it, and it's really meaningful isn't it that thousand pound in a small yeah. business well because you start making mistakes like that and it really adds up mm. um but it's it's also the sort of you know then it's back to people because what you really have to do is help your workforce feel connected. So this is why I think you're seeing the rise of social enterprise, B Corps, yeah. uh, you know, collectives, profit yeah. shares, yeah. because, you know, more and more, I think how you can't possibly run any kind of successful business, small or large, unless the people who work for you 
really care about it. I think that's right. And I think that's what we found as well with employee ownership. You know, genuinely, this is your business, guys. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, you may have, feel like it's a tiny sliver, but everything we can all do to, is going to make a difference. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to go off at a tangent now, yeah. um, Genevieve, if I may. Um, when you were growing up, what was money like? What were the kind of stories that your family used to say? Yeah, so it's a really interesting one for us because I always, my dad ran his own business. Yeah. And it was boom or bust. What um, kind of business was he? So he ran an engineering business, mm. um, which made machinery that did glamorous things like extruded uh, rubber for tennis balls and, um, <laughs> um, you know, the uh, coily wire that's between a, uh, a cab, a, a large truck and its container oh, yeah. on the yeah. back. That's a, that was a special process that was developed in Oldham, where I'm from. And he had one of the only sets of machinery that could produce curly rubber. <laughs> somebody has uh, to make it yeah well, somebody has to do it yeah exactly but he had um you know both my parents came from very ordinary backgrounds mm. um my one of my grandpas also worked they're all the family came from mills mill towns yeah in Oldham and when I've gone back and done my family tree it's always like you know Work, was a cotter, was a, worked on a loom, worked for like, nobody yeah. did anything but work in a cotton mill or a wool mill. And then my dad's father was promoted to be working as, in the office mm -hmm. as a general manager. And that really was the change in their family that he was promoted and put a suit on and went to work in an office. Yeah. Uh, and then my, my mother's father was a professional rugby league player. So oh, he, really? he yeah. came from Cumbria, um, from a mining town, and he, of all of his family, one of 11, didn't become a miner and became a professional rugby player. So oh, they, goodness. you know, it's really interesting stories. I yeah. think you look back now in the 30s and 40s, how people lifted mm. their family and mm. it was a small opportunity and a small lift yes. that changed people. Whereas now it feels like, the lift is huge yeah <laughs> so yeah the step that you have to make is huge but but their families made that step mom and dad both left school when they were 16 mm -hmm. um you know didn't do any further education but my mum went to work in a bank and my mm -hmm. dad went to work in an engine well actually went into the uh, RAF first and then went to work in um in in the engineering company yeah uh, and ended up running the engineering company he started work for in his 20s and then um run it ran his own business so but we were really boom or bust I think um I don't I won't go to too much but I think my father lived on the edge somewhat okay of, um, yeah you know do I really want to pay tax I don't think I do uh, okay. oh I'm going to pay a lot of tax and we're going to sell everything so that <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so there yes. was a bit of that. And then, you know, there was also terrible recessions. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, I can remember my mom and dad sitting, you know, in tears because they'd lost the business. The business had gone bust and my dad had had to make a couple of hundred people redundant. Oh, goodness. And they started up again a year later, just the two of them. Yeah. And started their own business. And my dad did a lot of buying and selling and trading, basically. Yeah. Um, and that was really our late teenage years. Mm. Um, so it was always, it's one of those things now. I think they came from a generation where they didn't really tell us about it. They didn't mm. really talk about it. Mm. But sometimes we had money and went on nice holidays. And sometimes yeah. we didn't. Yeah. But it was never terrible. So, you know, we were very fortunate. Were you conscious of those, like, boom and bust oh, yeah. periods? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Because of the stress, I think, in the family and yeah. the sort of whispered conversations or full-blown arguments. Yeah, <laughs> Lots yeah. of shouting. Or, you know, I think, I don't know if I've told you this, although I was sitting there doing my, revising for my A-levels mm -hmm. one afternoon and I got a phone call from my mum, don't answer the door. Uh, whatever you do, don't answer the door. And literally three bailiffs turned up, three oh massive goodness. guys were banging on the door and I was the only person in the house and I was shouted through the letterbox I'm not opening the door go away 
and they um there was three cars in the drive one mine and a couple of a van or something i can't remember what they were and they literally took them they just loaded them on a loader and took them away and i was like uh dad (laughs) the cars he was like don't go outside don't open the door extraordinary so yeah so um i was very aware that you know money could come and money could go and like Um, how does that manifest itself for you now uh well i think i'm a bit over it now but Mm. certainly you know i worked all the way through university um i've never for one minute thought about not having a job at university and i used to work five nights a week yeah um and I was a bouncer, I was worked behind bars, worked in Indian restaurants, did all sorts of jobs. Brilliant. I loved it. I yeah. loved all that. <laughs> and um, and then I started work two days after my finals, you know. So Crikey. I, I'm yeah. slightly of the I do slightly get sniffy about gap yards. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, well, I feel like I might need to take some time off after my terribly hard time at university. You know, so, yeah. Um, I'm a bit sort of just, just, things like that. Just yeah. get on with it. Yeah. yeah well, I can understand why. Well, and uh, it, I think you know there was no there was no choice. I think in my last year of university, probably the only times I spoke to my dad, he would have said, "Have you got a job yet?" Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so there was a yet. really strong work ethic all yeah, the way, yeah, all the way through. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then I very much had the sort of you know, um, I, the running away money. You know, okay. it was a never. I always was. I've got to have some money in the bank. I've got to have money in the bank. Yeah. Um, and then I got a bit more blasé about it. You know, the more money in the bank you have, the sort of you know, more relaxed you feel. Obviously. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. But, but I think that's, yeah, it's, it's never not there, that, I think. And I think that is really interesting because, again, I observe with clients that, you, you know, who have been through difficult money experiences, mm. I've seen people relax as they get more comfortable and they don't feel that somebody's going to suddenly take it away and, and can spend more freely. But I've equally seen people who always seem to live in fear of something happening. And I sometimes wonder whether they're leading the life that, that they ultimately would would want to but it, it runs deep I think well it does but I think that's also if you can understand that and acknowledge that I mean a lot of people say to me well why did you finish corporate life when you're mm. 45 and you could have kept working and you know you could have done this and you could have done that and it's like yeah but I didn't want to yeah and yeah. you know I could have a bigger house I could go on bigger holidays I could spend more money but equally I can live incredibly comfortably and be very fortunate Mm. and not and Mm. and so really it was about getting that balance of what do I want to do versus and I do you know I see very close friends and lots of people who just keep working yeah and you say what are you you going to do with all of that what is that about what is that about it's um you very often hear people say, well, I'll just do another year because yeah. I've got some form of lock-in or there's a bonus. Um, and it becomes a kind of addiction of sorts, I think, doesn't it? But... I think so. And, you know, I mean, I chair a lot of remuneration committees mm. and have, have done, and I know how powerful those schemes yeah. are. Yeah. And that is why companies have them. Yes, of <laughs> course. Know? Yeah. Um, but equally, I think it's going to be very interesting with this next generation. Mm coming through of whether they will do that or whether they will have this same motivation because the rewards are not the same yeah and you know lots of people I mean I always say yes I've been very lucky and I was good at my job and I got promoted yeah but I was also extremely fortunate to be able to buy property in London in my 20s yeah yeah you know so actually did I make more money out of property than I did out of corporate life yeah not quite but you know it was definitely a big part of it sure and and that is not there for lots of people now yeah Um, so apart from feeling like totally exhausted and wrung out with corporate life and uh kind of maybe difficulties around the board table Mm. how did you know that you'd got enough like what what was that real 
kind of what gave you the courage to step away? Well, I think there's two things really that um, I knew in my heart of hearts that I did not want to be a CEO. Okay. Um, I think they're incredibly difficult, lonely jobs. Mm. And I knew I didn't want to do that. And lots of people have always said, oh, you should have done that. You could have done that. I know myself, there is something in me that needs affirmation and praise and uh -huh. lots of, you know, kind of support. And I looked around at really fantastic people I knew who were in those jobs. You don't get that. Right. Yeah. You so you prefer that. part being part of a team rather yeah. than. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and so I knew that. Um, so then that was a partly a kind of like, well, unless I can therefore be working for a CEO that I really, really want to. Yeah. And then I suppose I'd been very fortunate that I'd worked in an industry, publishing and then education, where you can directly see what you're doing and what yeah. the impact is. Yeah. And it was very hard to then replicate that. So you know, I was kind of like, well, what industry am I going to work in? Yes. Yeah. That I can have it make a difference like mm. that. So, so there was lots of, lots of different reasons, mm. really. Mm. Um, and then I, you know, fell into being a non-executive director because I, I was at that stage where everybody suddenly was like, oh God, we better have some girls on the board. Uh, <laughs> it's girls like with that, digital, no. digital experience too. girls with digital experience yes. too. Brilliant. So, you know, lots of headhunters rigging me up and I, I liked it. I, mm -hmm. like, I like it, I, mm -hmm. I've, and the, what's been very interesting for me was working in sectors that I wouldn't have got, yeah. got a job in. Yeah. So I've really enjoyed working in financial services yes. and um, such an important sector yeah. for ordinary people. Absolutely. And so I've really, really found that very rewarding and, you know, learned a lot at Lego and Arab mm. and SDV mm. and and just being able to work with different people, but ultimately is doing something yourself. Yeah, yeah. You know, so being the advisor yeah. and the sort of, you know, and also a lot of boards are very heavy on corporate governance. Oh gosh. Um, and so the bigger the company, the more corporate governance, which is probably a good thing, but also not that interesting. Once I was gonna say- For a few years. Yeah, good, good thing to know it exists, but quite yeah. dry as a- Yeah. As, 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 a, as a subject matter for you, I guess, yeah. Yeah. And what, what's it been the draw for you into education? And, and I think you've invested in some education startups. Where, where does your passion for that come from? Well, that really came from Pearson and from okay. Marjorie. And, yeah. you know, I was very lucky that I spent, when I was the uh, digital officer and then the technology officer, or information officer, uh, you know, I worked with the education businesses very closely. Mm. And because I was zooming back and forth to San Francisco a lot and yeah. uh, Palo Alto, um, it just, I just knew a lot about it. Yeah. So I felt confident to make some investments and a couple of them have been really good. Mm. Um, and it's been, I really enjoyed working with the entrepreneurs. Yes. And really enjoyed helping them navigate some of yeah. those things so yeah. one young um, pair of entrepreneurs particularly were the company was bought and I really really enjoyed helping them through that sale helping mm. them understand that helping them through the exit on the other side which we did last year um, and that's been brilliant. So there's two um, things going on there. there there's a great end yeah. product but you've also really enjoyed the, the business development and mentoring of yeah of entrepreneurs which yeah fascinating yeah. yeah yeah and I did a bit of coaching and I mm -hmm. did a bit of the, but you know actually interestingly our own business up here is much more rewarding and people do find that odd yeah, yeah. You know, that I'm excited about our jam range or, <laughs> you know uh, we're just about to come into plant season and we'll get, have loads of plants and uh, but I just I do really enjoy being oh, a bet, yeah. it's, it's yeah. really different and exciting yeah and it, it is it a bit like open all hours up there that's the kind of that's the sense yeah. I've got and um, <laughs> we we do pride ourselves on ask us for anything 
yeah <laughs> I love it yeah love it four yeah. candles and everything yeah exactly we are, yeah don't even get me started I'm gonna I'll put a link to your Instagram because you do post some great Instagram um oh, pictures of your current ranges I, I, I love looking at those yeah. I'm, I'm conscious of time Genevieve and you've been very generous with your time but I've just got a couple more slightly frivolous questions to ask if I may well one frivolous question and then and maybe an important one um yeah what has given you the most pleasure that you've purchased under about 30 pound in the last 12 months or so? That is so easy. That is Trini's uh, BFF face serum. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, the and, best, it's the best beauty product you will ever, ever have. It's so, incredible. So that's Trini's BFF face serum. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's all you need to know. Br brilliant. Oh, Love yeah. it. And, and yes, I can, I can, I, I can see the benefits. <laughs> and um, what is the one thing that you would like to own that you don't already possess? God. Well, I did used to have very exciting supercars, and I, I would quite like one back. <laughs> we sold. I had a very nice Bentley. Uh, sports car which I sold to pay for the shelving in this food shop um, which uh, don't ask but I decided pressed plywood shelving throughout a huge food store would be the thing to have I'm sure it looks um, lovely and yeah um, I, yeah I mean I sort of I loved so, driving a fast car bit of a penchant for a fast car I, know, I, what you I mean. know and then I love buying paintings okay so mm. I'd love to feel like I had a bit more spare time actually rather than cash to go yeah. out and look around art galleries and support nice. local artists yeah 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 and that's something isn't it that you can I mean it's such a bloody obvious thing to say isn't it but you you, you can get daily pleasure from just looking at it and yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know exactly what you mean Genevieve can you leave us I like to leave our listeners with you know, there's been stacks of things that you've passed on throughout the conversation, but do you have any pearls of kind of money wisdom <laughs> that you could leave, leave us with? I mean, you came up with actually three brilliant management tips. I think be oh, clear I? about clear oh. about what you want people to do, <laughs> treat people re with respect and pay them fairly. Yeah. There's not I a know, lot else, it, is there? It's, yeah. No, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? Um, I think... I don't know if this is appropriate for a Red House Paradigm Norton uh, thing, but I was like, give more away. Oh, I think give it's more bang money on. away. Yeah. Um, you don't need as much as you think you do. Yeah, I um, love that. And, uh, you know, I think you can give small amounts away or you can give large amounts away, mm. but if you're mm. giving, somebody needs it more than you do. Do you know, that's, I, I think that is a it's such a strong message and it is we we as a firm um are very keen to talk to our clients about philanthropy and and I think there's there's, there's a discussion in there and one of the things that I want to do as the as the series goes on is delve into things mm. like giving more so maybe we can pick that up another time Genevieve it, but yeah it would be great to have a conversation perhaps even a round table conversation that's mm. I, I look at so many people and I think you know in a wide circle of friends and acquaintances. Yeah. Your kids really need that. Why are you saving it? Yeah. You're going to give it them in 20 years. They need it now. Yeah. You yeah. There's, it... But but we are, we have been indoctrinated, I think, somewhat to be frightened about our old age. Yes. Yeah. And there's something there in society that says we're frightened that we'll be left alone. Mm. And we're frightened that we won't have enough money to look after ourselves. Yes. And that's super powerful. Yeah. Um, and, and I see a lot of people, particularly as I get older, where they're saying, oh, I've, well, I'll, I'll need that for my care when I'm yes. older. Yes. That's a tough message in society, isn't it? It really um, is, isn't it? And I, and I think... Yeah. I mean, and, and, and yeah, I think there's, de there's definitely more to, to probe around that because... Mm -hmm. You know, I, I've got this real thing about kind of, you know, um, co-living, co, co kind of cohabitation, mm. kind of sharing much more community type living yeah. and which I, 
you know, but you're, you're right. There are very strong fears of living and being lonely and um, nobody coming to visit and one bar on the electric heater. Mm. Yeah. Genevieve, yes. thank you so much. It's been thank you. brilliant to chat with you. Thank you for your time. I can see you've got a beautiful day out there. So um, I hope you're going back out into the garden. Go yes. and enjoy it. And yeah. Uh, yeah, lovely. Look forward to checking next time. Thanks, Ruth. Thanks, nice Genevieve. Bye for Bye. now. Bye. Bye. Wow, Genevieve's quite a woman, isn't she? I literally only scratched the surface of Genevieve's experiences and the wisdom she could have shared. She spoke about many things that I could highlight, but I was particularly taken by the generosity gene. Uh, and I must admit, I've been lucky enough over the course of my career to have some key bosses that have had that generosity gene. Now, before you go, let me just tell you about my next guest in two weeks time, Mark Cadogan. Now, Mark is the CEO of Ella's Kitchen, which is a B Corporation. We talk about Mark's personal journey and the role that business, not just government, can and should stand for to change our world for the better. It really is an enlightening episode. Be sure not to miss it. To make sure you don't, please subscribe to Money Expresso wherever you listen to your podcasts so you never miss an episode. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast to subscribe, rate, and give a five-star review for Money Expresso. Apparently, this helps more people to find the podcast so we can help more people think differently about their money and their life. If you've got any thoughts, comments, or questions on any of the matters discussed, or life and money generally, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Ruth Sturkey. Of course, the conversations with my guests are not intended as advice. My intention is to merely share our guests' money and life experiences to entertain, educate and inform you. Any form of investing involves risk and the value of your investments may go down as well as up. So please do speak with a financial planner before making any investments to make sure they're the right ones for you. Thank you. Mm -hmm.